Sagarika Shiram is currently a student at Jumeirah College in Dubai. She founded the organization Kids for a Better World when she was 10 years old with a mission to educate and encourage young children to lead a more sustainable life and reduce their carbon footprint. Children are the worst affected by climate change, yet most children do not participate in climate change discussions or take actions to live more sustainably. Kids for a Better World conducts awareness workshops on sustainability aiming to educate, motivate and activate young children to conserve natural resources, protect biodiversity and positively impact climate change. As a UN climate advisor, she has participated in the global consultations that will ensure children are made aware of their environmental rights and that UN member states protect and uphold these. Sagarika Shufam, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Hi, thank you for having me. So just tell us what began you on your environmental journey to start Kids for a Better World. Where are the seeds of all of this? Sure. So I began my environmental work when I was about 10 or 11 years old. I just finished a course with John Hopkins Center for Talented Youth on HTML web design and coding. And for my final project, I had to create a full functioning website. For that, I decided to theme it around the environment. And then it was just generally the base of it. And simultaneously at school and generally around my home, I was being taught about the basics of climate change and environmental awareness and how to live a more sustainable life. And I really did feel at that age, I wanted to be an individual who could use my knowledge and my skills for the better of humanity and really make an effort to make a difference in my community. So I essentially set up this website, which could be accessed from anywhere in the world to teach children about how they can do small things in their own households very basic initiatives to live a more sustainable life and to educate themselves and others. So you work in a butterfly effect where it goes on and on and on um, and you can share your experience and you can all become individual change makers. Indeed. And something that surprised me when the president of Earth Day, Kathleen Rogers, said to me, and I know that you're dealing with very young people. She says that it, no country in the world makes it a requirement to be educated about our planet, a requirement for graduation from high school. So that's quite unbelievable considering the challenges we face and the needs to adapt and just be informed and be able to be part of that change. And then, of course, the challenge is even greater. Educate even younger people. So tell us at what age are young people getting involved in some of your initiatives and how do you make that quite complicated information from something that they can absorb, understand and be a part of? Yes. So like you said, it's not currently mandatory. I think Italy right now has probably had the most progress with this. I do know that now they're making it mandatory in middle school to have climate education and the UAE as well as take a lot of work towards this in our setup. We have something called moral studies here in the UAE, which is mandatory, and they're trying to put climate education components in that. I'm dealing with the age of 8 to 16 is what I've been focusing on with Kids for a Better World. And the biggest thing is if you overcomplicate it, they tend to just switch off. Nothing stays retained. And it can be extremely overwhelming. And I think focusing on educating children, you should always be aware of their mental health and ensure that if you are telling them something, you're not that leave the wrong signals. I can imagine if I was nine, just hearing that by 2050, we don't work towards climate awareness, could be that we don't have planet Earth. That's just mind blowing. Even now at 17 years old, I can't process that. So what we focused on is that keeping information concise and really simple. It shouldn't be a chore to live a more sustainable life. It shouldn't be like a lesson. It shouldn't be a class. A child should want to make that difference. A child should feel the need to work toward creating environmental change. And we've partnered with numerous organizations here in the Middle East and globally with other members of the youth who are doing a lot towards the community. I think 
when it becomes youth educating the youth, children are a lot more receptive as opposed to an adult because you can relate more to someone who is your age. And that is the biggest thing for me is that I don't want it to become a class because I imagine at that age, I would have found it extremely boring if I was being taught it in everyday school because I have that mental block at that age that I don't want to do schoolwork out of school. So it was important to me that I got it through to children in an interactive way, which they could participate in and they could therefore teach other people the skills that I've taught them. And I wonder, being in the UAE and Dubai, is con- it's very you know, high tech and you have different sets of challenges, but of course, much of the wealth is founded on fossil fuels. What are the roadblocks in terms of getting that education out there and not renouncing what has made Dubai successful at the same time, acknowledging we need to adapt and how do we use the technologies? So Dubai right now is to a lot towards living very sustainably. We have Expo 2020 which had, they have a complete pavilion dedicated to sustainability. It was mandatory for you to go see Expo 2020 and visit the sustainable site so that you are taught about what's happening. We also have Sustainable City. We have the Ski Dubai. is used to power the air conditioning for the whole mall. So there is a lot that is being done recently within the community in Dubai. But I do think biggest roadblocks would potentially be getting through, getting through to everyone. I think when it is a place like Dubai, because... There's so much going on and it's a very business intensive place. It can be hard for a child to have a voice here because you're surrounded by so many powerful people that it's like you can almost feel a little bit underwhelmed. But I do feel grateful that I've been supported by so many people. The KHDA here, which is the education department of the government, have been working alongside me to help me get through to different schools. I've worked with a lot of local organizations who've helped me connect and meet so many children who are like me. And it's almost become like a community, which has definitely helped ease those roadblocks. It's stereotypical to think that how can you live in Dubai and lead a sustainable life, right? But I think that they are doing a lot towards that, especially with COP28 happening um, at the end of this year. There is a lot of progress that is being made. Uh, And speaking of that progress, tell us about some of your partnerships or support from the government, how we're stronger when we work together. So over the past few years, my first initiative was conducted with Emirates Environmental Group, which is a local environmental organization here. And I did that when I was about 11 or 12. And when I worked with them, it was a little bit of a push in the right direction for me because I did feel that Emirates Environmental Group, as supportive as they were with me and as much as they educated me at the provided me with the right resources to conduct my first workshop, which I collected 1,000 kilos of household paper waste. Um, and I got a tree planted in my name. And whilst that was definitely very helpful, it taught me a lot. I do feel like it was a little bit commercialized. And I didn't really enjoy the fact that I, I wasn't given that motivation that I wanted. And I felt that I needed to run my own organization to get that. I needed to teach children that it was not like, you're not one child in a math. The efforts you are putting towards it are making a difference. So that was also a little bit of a push in the right direction for me when I set up Kids for a Better World. But beyond that, I've partnered with a lot of local organizations, especially with the government. I used to work with Day for Dubai, which is an organization conducted by His Highness Sheikh Hamzan. And it was essentially an organization where they said that if each UAE resident put together 24 hours towards sustainability, charity work, community service, that large-scale change could be made. And I do believe that was one of my most inspiring and motivational path-breaking events because I felt like working alongside someone who does have so much influence here, it really did make me feel like a lot of work is being done and being so closely associated with that. It gives you a realization that what you're doing is making a difference. And then in India, of course, you 
facing different set of challenges. Of course, there's a high-tech sector as well. As you think about customizing or bringing out your initiative to other countries, how would you customize that to those regions? I'm on the board of the United Nations Child Rights Committee, and we're currently working on something called the General Comment 26, which essentially considers these aspects. It's a document that states the demand of the requests that children want when it comes to environmental awareness and the fact that children of all different backgrounds and different nationalities, regions, should all have the opportunity to have a say in, in what's going on our planet. And they should have a say in the decisions that are being made since it is going to affect our future. And it shouldn't just be limited to children who are based in you know, more populated places or more well-connected. It should include everyone. And I think that the education I've learned from working alongside the 18 global advisors of the Child Rights Committee has helped me develop my own Kids for a Better World to better suit children in maybe less developed regions. I've met several global children who are the same aspects as me, but from different backgrounds. And I'm working alongside them to see how I can adapt Kids for a Better World to suit the children in their regions. But I think the technology specifically has been a blessing. Although maybe it does not access children in lower developed region, it certainly does help you get more connected with people globally, which if it was more of a physical one-on-one, like face-to-face project would not be possible. And I still want to focus on getting your children in places they don't have access to technology. I believe that is a little bit more complicated, but yeah, I think I'm working towards it. <laughs> well, I must be said, you're fitting all this in with your school, which is challenging enough. Um, speaking of UN initiatives, which of the UN Sustainable Development Goals are most important to you and dear to your heart? Sure. Kids for Better Worlds focuses on the United Nations Sustainable Goals 13, 14, and 15. So you're focusing on land below water and the environment. Essentially, I think, obviously, for an organization focusing on environmental awareness, those are the biggest components. I do believe that I'm sort of trying to recently at least focus on different aspects of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. I know a few of them relate to climate education. And I've recently been focusing a lot of that, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, where we've switched to online learning for a very long time. I think climate education is essential in those situations because you're confined to this one spot. And not only with single-use plastic waste increasing, but along with masks and other sort of pollution that just come up in the past two years, climate education is essential because you do need to be taught about how to deal with. What do you think is something about the climate crisis in the current moment that first world countries might overlook and is much more prevalent in third world countries? Off the top of my head, I would like to focus a little bit and understand the differences between first generation countries and obviously lesser developed regions. I'm applying to the USB University and my dream school currently is Yale, but obviously that's extremely aspirational. But I currently did college tours last summer and I really did love the programs that Yale had towards especially environmental studies. And I think, especially with the work I've been doing, that's definitely something I would enjoy. I've avoided the environmental science route because I view my environmental work from more of an advocacy aspect. And I find that more interesting. Not to say that environmental science is something that I'm not interested in, but I'm more suited for environmental studies, I think. Yeah, I think that's important because a big aspect of what you do and you emphasize in reaching out to people is that everyone can be involved. You don't have to understand the complications of science. You don't have to have a maths degree. 
these are things you can do at home incrementally. And so that's really important because while the science is important and we need to get those technologies on stream, it's what each one of us does then collectively that makes the difference. I completely agree. I think there's this block in society there where people believe that to work towards environmental awareness and climate consciousness, usually in the science stream, you know, extremely educated and you have this high level skill. It's not that complicated, especially for the youth. There are just a few basic things you need to know. And then it just comes to you naturally. I know for me at that age, I certainly did not have this high level of skill, but I do believe that it's sort of a shift in your mentality that leads to the most change. You really do need to just realize where to change your day-to-day habits. And alongside, I've been exposed to a lot of different organizations who've helped me develop and learn so much more and just be open to learning from different people and understand these different skills. And it's a lot simpler than it may seem. Indeed. And you have these incentivized programs where people can complete certain tasks that they set for themselves. Just tell us a little bit about that and how they get sure. the points. And it's an encouraging, it's a journey, it's a commitment, it's a daily practice. So essentially at that age, I was very set on the fact that I did not want my website to become like a lesson. I did not want it to become a class where child senior felt almost obligated to work towards it. I did want it to always be fun. Like you're enjoying this, you're going onto the website, you're completing tasks. And you're getting a prize. I know for me growing up, there were a lot of these fun fairs near me, like in malls and things like that, where you play a game, you get a prize. And I felt it's almost invigorating to know that I'm getting rewarded for a task I'm doing. And I thought that I've never really seen a scheme like that where you're conducting those environmentally educating tasks and you're receiving a prize. And that too, I wanted to make sure that the prizes were sustainably sourced and that they benefited the community so that children aren't being sent mixed messages and they are being taught that there are these sustainable alternatives for products that you know and love. So some of my favorites include like Lash. I was obsessed with cosmetics and naturally sourced cosmetics. And for a while, I also conducted my own project called The Happiness Project, which focused on creating and DIY products for your skin. Um, but to this day, I use a little bit of them. I've been a bit busy, so I haven't been able to produce them and sell them within my community. But I still, I use face masks all the time. I make my own lip scrubs. To me, it was this idea that I wanted to create this community, this community that taught children that you can get rewarded for your environmental work. And obviously for younger children, I do think that they don't really have that drive at that age. Maybe they do. If they do, that's fantastic. But it's more likely that I've noticed that they do need that little bit of a push because when they do get older, they understand it. They internalize what they're doing. But just that initial push in the right direction was the whole point of the point. Exactly. And then they can get in the more complicated things and the deeper sacrifices. Exactly. And as much as we all individually have to take on and be able responsible for our footprint and reducing our consumption and making those daily choices, of course, it's the larger infrastructure and these systems that are in place that really can make that change on a larger scale and make the greatest impact. And you have UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres coming out with quite harsh statements against the fossil fuel industry and that the polluters must pay, whether it's a global windfall tax on energy companies or it's stop talking at some stage and make those hard decisions because sometimes the decisions, they're not immediately economically incentivized. It'll cost a little bit more. But then, of course, with renewable energy in the end, in some ways now it is cheaper, even renewable energies, if the fossil fuel industry wasn't so heavily subsidized in a way that it is. So in terms of in Dubai and the UAE, what are some of those hard decisions that you're seeing or that are being slowly implemented? 
I think in Dubai, in the UAE specifically, it has this impression to be this glistening city. You see skyscrapers everywhere you go. There's a stereotypical idea that everybody's rich. You see Rolls Royces on the roads and things like that. And obviously from an environmental standpoint, that can be perceived as terrible for the environment. But I think that Dubai is doing a lot recently. I did mention sustainable city and obviously towards COP28, a lot of efforts are being put in place. But specifically, I think now there are a lot of rules and regulations. Recently, they introduced a tax on plastic bags. So essentially, you're charged for single-use plastic bags if you require them, a supermarket. And I think within schools as well, your children are being taught and it is now mandatory to teach them climate education in certain subjects, not only geography or biology, but along with our moral and social studies, because they're being taught to interact with the local community. And that is essential. And then just beyond that, in our buildings, and especially like Burj Khalifa, which is the world's tallest building, they're implementing solar panels on it. And that is, I think, groundbreaking because essentially when you view a building like that, from a global perspective, it can be perceived as obviously terrible for the environment. But when changes like that are happening, it really does teach you that you can have best of both worlds. I do think that there's a lot more to come, but I believe that this is just a step in the right direction. And do you think that it's possible that some cultures or some countries might follow sustainability in ways more than first world countries might? I know, especially for India, there were a lot of places I went to which were really big on solar panels that might not be here in America. Yes, I completely think so. I definitely think that different countries have different priorities that they might focus on. And I do think that in first world countries, although they might have more access to education and environmental awareness, it's not the biggest priority. There may be other goals that they need to be fulfilled. I recently went to Switzerland for a climate conference back in 2022, and there was a lot of work there that was being done towards sustainability and climate consciousness. I think there's a rule that air conditioning is completely banned in Switzerland, and that is mind-blowing to me coming from a place like Dubai where it's almost impossible to live without air conditioning in the heat that we have outside. But that was crazy to me that places are making such drastic changes. So I think that is very different from different places. But I do see that's also changing now and that gap is becoming smaller and smaller because countries are understanding that this is essential. This is a priority that needs to be focused on if developments want to be made in the long term. And how do you think with your kids for a better world and prizes that you aim to give out and all these projects that it might impact kids from different cultures? Yeah, I went to COP27 recently in Egypt, the Chomoshe, and that was probably the first time in my life where I've met so many people in one room. There was about 40,000 people focusing on the same goal. We all have the same mindset. That's the one common factor is that we're all from different backgrounds, different ages, different regions, but we all have that one goal that we're focusing on. That was extremely inspirational. I worked a lot on the children's climate and education pavilion here at COP27. I was speaking to people who were saying that their home is at risk. And that's, it's something that's so complicated to wrap your head around. And it just taught me, it educated me to know that meeting these children from different backgrounds helped me get a deeper understanding and connect to the work I'm doing. And I think that, especially in this industry, you are constantly educated and you can never be in a situation. You can always learn from others. That's also the point of Kids for a Better World is that you're learning from children. It's not only me who's teaching children, but I'm learning from them and it's a mutual connect. Indeed. It is an industry with a green industry, but also looking at the attendees at the COP27, COP26, 
the number of lobbyists, uh, they said from fossil fuels, I don't know the exact numbers in the end, but it's actually outnumbering some of the environmentalists taking part. So we really have to be careful about this greenwashing and when it's just about talk or it's just about window dressing for the profiteering that's taking place. So your direct experience of COP27, do you feel more than heard? Do you feel a part of it? What did you find positive coming out of it? And where did the frustrations arise? Yeah. So I think a very big focus in the past few years was the idea that children are being used, it's limit children being used in the form of tokenism. This idea that children just being presented as marketing schemes, like, oh, we have the youth working with us on our projects. It's extremely popular. There's a very big risk that is happening with a lot of large companies approaching you to have children on posters and things like that. But there's not a lot of deeper change that is happening. And I think even at COP27, I definitely met a lot of people who were sharing their experiences with me relating to these situations. I think it was definitely inspiring to know that you were listening to people really share their stories um, and you were seeing the change that was being done. I think the biggest and maybe the most frustrating thing at COP27 for me was that children were not being used in negotiations. When it comes to policymaking, it is affecting us. It is our generation that is going to be affected the most. But somehow we were not included in that. Our voice was not being heard in negotiations. And I know a lot of focus is being put on that now at COP28. I think my biggest issue with COP27 was that, that I knew overall I heard about one situation where a child was being put and included in negotiation. Because beyond that, you're just, you're hearing about these negotiations. You're not kept in this room. You're hearing about the conclusions that have been made, but you're not involved in the discussions that are happening. And yeah, I do believe that that was frustrating because I think that for the amount of work I'm putting in, and children my age are putting in, what is it if you're not being included in these large-scale global decisions? And I think it's almost like you're being told one message, you're being supported by these large governments and these powerful people. But I would have loved to see more voices being presented when it comes to negotiations. But yeah, I know COP28 is focusing a lot more on that, for what I've heard. As a first-year student in a sustainable-based major, having this interview with Sagarika Shriram was especially inspiring to me. It was good to know that not only has she gone to big parts like UN conferences, but also taken part in local projects in her area, because big or small, every action has an impact on our environment. Sagarika is right. Oftentimes, kids don't know the impact that we are having on our environment or why we should take actions to help along the way. By giving good incentives like points or sustainability-based prizes, not only does it encourage kids to help the environment by taking sustainable actions, but teaches them about the impact we're having so they can go ahead and tell the kids around them, therefore spreading the word. I admire Sagarika's determination to not only reach kids at a high-privileged place or kids who have access to technology, but kids at lower privileges as well, or kids with poverty or kids who don't have an access to technology. Because, like Sagarika said, the most important part is that our generation and the kids who are there now are the ones who will be affected by the environment later. And therefore, kids should also have a say in the decisions that are being made for the environment in our world right now.
I think Kids for a Better World is one organization among many that has a big impact on students all over. And I think that it's very important for us as adults to reach these kids and educate them about the environment. So we all collectively know about the impact that we are having and what we can do to better. And now back to the interview. Yes, indeed. It's a question about whether the planet, above all for your generation, is viable. And we're faced with limited resources, dwindling resources, and population is one of these tricky issues. But your country where you were born in, India, is on track for soon being 1.5 billion, the population. What are your reflections on that? I know I've spoken to others who really question whether they can bring children into this world. They feel they will be preparing them for a future that's uncertain. How do you reflect on that? It's a very sensitive subject, I think. In terms of, I've been to India, and recently I went to actually Varanasi, which is a holy city in India. And in the past, I've definitely seen the river Ganges used to full with pollution and plastic and things like that. And recently I went and it was nothing like that. And it was completely clean. There was a lot of effort that was being done towards changing that. And I think, yes, if you are raising a child, you do have to have that mentality to educate them from a young age, to learn and to be better suited and adapt to our world as it is. Obviously, you can't go back in time. You can't change what's happening. You can't reverse what has happened in the past. The only thing you can do is change what's happening in the future. And children or my generation is at that stage where we do have the opportunity to make a change. It's a small window, but I do believe that we do have that. At least for me, I'm extremely privileged to say I have the access to the resources and the people who can help to make that change. But I would hope, and I certainly, at least for me, I will definitely make sure that for my children and my grandchildren, that they are taught that you have to be grateful. You have to have that mentality that what you have is at risk. It's not ideal, but it's at risk. And you need to adapt your lifestyle to fit that. And you should make a difference. And so I'm wondering who were your teachers and mentors that imparted this passion for commitment to the planet? What did they teach you? So I think my biggest mentors were my parents. My mom was incredibly supportive from the start, whether it be driving me to workshops or taking me on different trips. She's definitely been very supportive, especially now during my A-level. It can be extremely overwhelming a lot of the time whether it be school, high school, my environmental work, it's all a lot in my head a lot of the time. I do think that she's in that stability beside me that's helped me get in the right frame of mind when I am doing this. And I do believe she's definitely been there to help me and motivate me. My dad, on the other hand, has always raised me to live a very sustainable and environmentally conscious lifestyle. Since I was young, we've had our own kitchen garden and we've grown our own fruits and vegetables all at home. I've been raised in the environmental community and it's called the greed community. So around me, I'm surrounded by plants and animals. I have a little puppy and I've always had this deep connect, understanding to the environment. And when I was younger, I remember my parents used to tell me that if you don't protect the environment, imagine what could happen to Simba. Simba's my dog. When they used to say, what could happen to Simba? I was always that like at that age, it's yeah, if I don't do something, that's crazy. This, it's almost this responsibility that was instilled upon me. Um, and I'm extremely grateful for that. I think as a household, I've been educated. And I do hope to do that for my children, my grandchildren. And that's extremely important to me. And I think my school has definitely been very supportive when it comes to different workshops. They've given me a little bit of this leniency and helped me manage both aspects of school alongside my environmental work. And I think that balance, it would be a lot harder 
But I think that I'm very grateful to have both those aspects and very supportive. Did you think about the future? Share with us some of your fondest memories about the beauty and wonder of the natural world and what you would like young people to know, preserve, and remember. So for me, one of these moments where I had an awakening almost was when I went to the Maldives when I was 12 or 13. And I remember we went swimming and snorkeling and we were underwater. It almost felt like a scene out of a movie where I saw these incredible pearls and I remember seeing Stingray swim past me. And then seconds later, I saw a plastic bag underwater. And it looked ironic. It was like, you could see these two worlds. And I didn't enjoy the feeling that I'm seeing so much beauty, but you can also see that little bit of destruction that's happening. And I think that the interconnectedness of the environment, it's just what's so beautiful about it. If you think about it in the past, we've lived this symbiotic relationship with the nature, the flora and the fauna, and us as individuals. And recently that has been out of balance, especially in COVID-19. A little bit of that was definitely restored because I know I've seen footage all over my social media of gazelles roaming roads, kangaroos in Australia, just on the main road. I know for a while someone saw like camels on the highway over here during COVID-19. And it's just, it's very incredible to see how at that time period where we were confined to our own spaces, you can see how the natural world is becoming more connected. And I think that is an extremely beautiful aspect of earth we've been taught to live connected and that connection has been naturally made there and then especially for my children i think and like the future generations i believe that you need to keep that there you call it with globalization and increased reliance on fossil fuel emissions and things like that it is a very high risk that you deprioritize the natural environment and you focus on other aspects such as a finding urban environments and things like that. And whilst that is beneficial from an economic standpoint, think about the other things. You need to be taught that those, if you do lose a natural environment, it is eventually going to affect you. I heard about a statistic a while ago where essentially if all the bees die, soon later it doesn't exist. Life doesn't exist. And I think just little things like that where you don't notice, you don't know how important these little effects and these key factors can be. Your passion is contagious, and thank you for reminding us about how interconnected we indeed are. So thank you, Sagarika Shiram and Kids for a Better World, for all that you do to advance climate education, helping us find beauty and connection amidst the challenges we face, and inspiring young people to take an active role and make the world a better place for future generations. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you. One Planet podcast is supported by the Jan Mashowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Tevesha Yanani with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Devesha Yernani. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.